morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome. Hey, uh, let's all move to Arizona. What do you say? Anybody, anybody for Arizona? If we all go, then we'll all be there and it'll just be like home. Yeah, except for the weather. So I think that's, that's probably something we should think about. Yeah, thank you again for your generosity and faithfulness. As Pastor Jeff was saying, we have initiatives in many, many places right now, Kazakhstan, Central Asia. By the way, we're growing our team there. We have a team of Kazakhs there planting house churches, and we're adding Kazakhs to the team, and we're very excited about that. Uh, we have we have that are leading people to Jesus on a weekly basis. And, of course, the churches we've planted just in the last couple of years in Ohio and in Florida and in Tennessee and inner city, Anderson, Indiana, and right here in Muncie. We are very excited about what God is doing. So thank you. You're making it possible. We appreciate your generosity very much. Just a reminder, men, that the men's retreat's coming up on Saturday this week. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, I hope you will. It's going to be a really fabulous event. Uh, it's, it's so very convenient. We'll start at 8.30 right in this room on Saturday next. We'll go through lunch and then let you go. Uh, and, of course, it's a barbecue dinner. The whole thing is $10. Now, come on. This is a tremendous value for $10. And if you can't afford it, then I'll pay for your way, okay? Just as you're going out today, sign up and say, Paris said he'd pay for it. <laughs> and... I'll take care of you that way if you're that pitiful. So <laughs> Dr. Tony Evans is going to be one of the keynoters, um, one of my favorite preachers in the world. He's doing great work with men right now. And by the way, uh, this, is, this is all free of charge. There's a crisis of manhood in our culture and in our world. And any opportunity we have to reinforce the biblical vision for authentic manhood, we should do it. And this is an opportunity to do so. So, man, I hope that you will take advantage of that. Tony Dungy, another keynoter. It's going to be a great, great morning. And so it'll be value added to your life. And the fellowship will be rich. And so we're looking forward to spending those hours together. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. And let me just say to young men in the room, I asked the younger members of our staff this week, I said, you know, when we do a men's deal like this, it's hard to get young men to participate. Why is that, I asked. I mean, this is good for you. Why wouldn't you participate? Was Well, when you hear about a men's retreat, we always think that's for adults. <laughs> listen to me, young men. Listen, if you're old enough to vote for president and fight in a war, you're an adult. You're a man. And so these things are for you. And so I challenge you to come. It'll, it'll add value to your life. So get signed up. You can do that, that online. You can sign up on your way out in the cafe, the lobby today, and we'll have a great time. All right, we continue this uh, season of Lent here at Union Chapel. We're celebrating, considering the words of Jesus from the cross, and today we've chosen as our text from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read for us verses 29 to 36. Of course, we'll project the words on the screen as well. Our custom is to stand to recognize and honor God's Word, so thank you for doing that as you're able. Verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? 
Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Note the sarcasm. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When someone, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And may God instruct us, inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I'd like you to at least attempt with me this morning to imagine yourself literally, physically present at Calvary. Imagine yourself there on the hill. Try to comprehend the mood, the spirit, uh, the ethos, the, the character, the environment of that moment. What kind of energy was there? What kind of, what kind of uh, discernment might you have about being in that place? Now, we can, we can identify this room right now. It's, it's warm. It's comfortable. It's, it's pleasant. It's, it's peaceful. We've enjoyed God's presence among us and enjoyed our fellowship with one another. And so it's, it's a good place. It's a warm place. But think about Calvary. We know there's a few women there. They're whimpering and moaning perhaps there is great despair but then there are all these other characters all of these other players and all of them without exception have a similar kind of approach to Jesus they are insulting him they are mocking him. They, they they are they are damaging him with their words and their energy and their attitudes and we might describe Describe it as a mob mentality. Have you, ever, have you ever been part of a mob? Have you ever been in a riot? Most of us haven't. I, I actually was in a riot. I didn't get up that day and say, hey, let's go to a riot. I found myself in a riot. It was after dark round. There was incredible chaos. Not only were people flying around, but objects were flying through the air. People were being hit and hurt and damaged, some critically injured. It was, it was very dramatic and very terrifying to be there. What we know about Calvary that day is that the Romans were there. They had been mistreating and maligning him. Where the crowd was mocking him relentlessly. The passers-by, even the common person uh, on holiday at Passover in Jerusalem, were hurling insults, deriding him, the chief priests. I mean, these are, these are the most uh, accomplished people in the culture, the scribes and priests, the scholars, the interpreters of Scripture. Even they are insulting him. Those who were crucified beside him are taunting him. All of the people there with one idea, one spirit, one intention, it's, it's, it's demonic, it's dark, it's evil, trying to destroy Jesus, trying to crush him, trying to dehumanize him, trying to annihilate him. 
It's not enough to crucify him and kill him, but now we want to drive him completely out of existence. It's a very dark, very dark moment. People who were there, just imagine a passerby. This could be anyone who's for the holiday. Now, remember, this is, this is Friday. On the eve of Passover, the night before Thursday, this is when all of the Jews would celebrate the Seder meal, the, the celebration, this honorable meal, which recognized the extrication that God provided through the deliverer Moses of the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So they had, they had symbolized this in a meal with a roasted lamb and the story of how God had saved them and that's on the table. A cup for Elijah, which represented their ongoing hope that a Messiah would be provided by God. And each of these Jews had drunk from that cup. It's an amazing thing. They'd sung the halal. This is from Psalm 106. They actually, the night before, had sung this together in their families, in their homes. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And you ask the question, how is this even possible? How is it possible under these circumstances? Well, it's been said that the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, watch, was not Jesus on trial, but humanity. I think there's something there. So here's what, here's what I want you to derive from these comments. The scene at Calvary, the scene at the cross, actually holds a mirror up to all of us, to our own souls. We are meant to see ourselves in this crowd. And if you think about it, it's not hard to do. Remember when you were growing up, uh, grade school age mostly, but in some cases older still, when there were boys and girls in your school or in your neighborhood, these were the boys and girls who were easy to pick on and you made fun of them. Or maybe you were the object of that ridicule or that bullying. But we all have memories of that. Uh, back when I was in school, corporal punishment was still in vogue. It was still very popular. The Board of Education was applied to the seat of knowledge very frequently in my school growing up. Yeah. Uh, the only time I received such punishment was on the heels of a derogatory comment that I had made about a classmate in my teacher's hearing, and she cracked me, and I deserve that and more, and I regret that. There was a family in our hometown of Boswell. Boswell at the time and still is about a 1,000 people, and everybody knew everybody else in this small town, as is the case, and... One of the families in our town were the Wilsons. And the Wilsons had eight children, and Mr. Wilson was an alcoholic. And they lived in this little hovel of a house, all ten of them. And it's interesting to me that even the, even the real estate knows that there's dysfunction. Isn't it curious? The house kind of sags. No grass grows in the front yard. How does, how does the property know that we're not well here? Two of the sisters in the Wilson family, one was in my class and one a class above me. When I look back on it now, I can understand exactly what happened. But at the time, I couldn't see. These girls were precious little girls. They wore the same cotton dress every day of the world. It's the only one they owned. Little cotton flower print, 
as the years passed by, became more and more dingy, more and more ragged. Their faces always had a little dirt. Their hair was always must. And they stuck together. The older of the two, as I say, looking back on it now, I know exactly what happened. She managed to fail fourth grade. It caught us all off guard because she was generally bright. But she managed to fail fourth grade, and I know why she did. She did it so she could provide protection for her younger, smaller, emotionally weaker sister. They were always together, never apart, in class, at lunch, during recess, coming and going. And the older would not permit the attacks, the accusations. When someone wanted to say ugly or stupid, they stood together. They, they decided and discovered that it was easier for them to endure the punishment if they were together. At one time or another, we're all party of this kind of childhood harassment, either giving or receiving. We've all been part of it. And as we get older, all that changes is that we become more sophisticated in the way we hurt people. We learn how to nuance it. We, knew how, we know how to make it just a little less overt. In recent years, uh, there have been several publicized cases of bullying in our culture, of course, cyberbullying. The results have been even to the extreme of suicide. And so reports of harassment and assaults and violence and murder and terrorism is in the news every day. And so we see the dark side. We know that it exists. A philosopher Carl Jung called it the shadow. In Christian vernacular, we call it the sin nature or the corrupt human nature, fallen nature of man. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who many of you know spent years in a Soviet prison camp, wrote in his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago, he wrote these words, and I quote, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But he said the problem is, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every person. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We are all confronted with it, aren't we? We all understand it. And so when I look at our country and I see the way that we are so divided today in so many ways, in so many categories, I wonder what it would take to move one segment of our population to justify violence against another segment of our population. Let me just say, it wouldn't take much. So perhaps uh, you find my examples too extreme or too dynamic, right? But the question for us is, what, what is it that sets us off? What sends you into an uncontrollable place? What pushes your button and gets you to a place of rage? Is it, uh, is it a simple thing like being told no? You've observed this. Maybe you've experienced it. I hope not. When someone tells you no, no, you can't return that item, and that's all it takes, and off you go. Or you want to upgrade your cell phone. Sorry, can't upgrade right now. What do you mean, no? Or a simple thing of being in a restaurant and a waitress tells you, no, you can't have that. And it leads you into a demeaning of her, dehumanizing of her. So selfishness and pride and fear and e ignorance so easily leads us into these, to these areas. And so what we learn from this moment at Calvary, this moment when Jesus is being dehumanized, is in essence that the that 
that we, in so many ways, big and small, have actually joined the religious people who stood around Jesus to humiliate him. We can understand them. We identify with them. And if we had been there, the temptation, the gravitational pull would have been to join them in what they were doing. And so then we hear the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's some things we can learn from Jesus. As always, he's the model for us and he directs our paths. And so on your outline, you'll see a few things we learn from Jesus in these words. The first is this, that he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He knew forsakenness. He knew abandonment. He knew hopelessness. He knew despair. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned my sister Kristen who lost her firstborn son, Caleb, when Caleb was 22. And I asked her to write for me some of her thoughts. And she put it to paper. And I, I shared some of those with you a couple of weeks ago. And let me just share another statement from her in that context. She said, I I remember the first few years when the pain was so overwhelming and incapacitating that I would tell God, can't you just throw me a bone? I felt like I deserved to have him audibly speak to me or appear to me, send someone with a message from him. I felt like he had abandoned me. Now, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all prayed that prayer. God, where are you? Why has this happened? And all I'm submitting to you today is that When we face a battle that we didn't expect to face or someone precious to us dies or we find ourselves humiliated and made small of in front of people we admire, these moments come to us and we wonder why I am experiencing this. And we feel isolated. We feel abandoned. We feel like God has left us alone. But let me just remind you that Jesus legitimately felt this same abandonment. And because he felt it, he is the one that we can now go to, to identify with. Jesus, I feel like I'm all alone. Jesus said, I know that feeling. I feel like you don't care about me anymore. Jesus said, I know how that feels. I feel feel like I've just been left to my own devices and, and that I'm hopelessly lost and without help. Jesus said, I know how that Jesus could have been some other kind of king, some other kind of Lord, some other kind of Messiah, one that didn't associate, didn't identify, didn't come to the very ground upon which we stand and live, but he chose to become one of us. So he identifies with us in our abandonment. And so we can call on him in that same hour of need that we might have. Here's a second thing. You might want to write this down. Jesus also teaches us to suffer, to suffer and sacrifice. I mean, this is what Jesus was doing, offering sacrificial love for the world as he died. So he showed us by example what sacrificial redemptive love looks like. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever sacrificed? Have you ever really paid a cost, a price, to offer the love of God to someone else? I mean, have you ever really suffered so that someone else could hear the hope of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not talking about volunteering for something or writing a check for something. That's not, come on. I'm talking about putting your life on the line so that someone else might receive the love of God. I think about the men and women who first joined our team in Kazakhstan 20 years ago. Steve Unangst, who put his life on the line, literally put his life on the line, blazed a trail into Central Asia. Listen, what you may not know about Central Asia, Kazakhstan, part of the former Soviet Union, 
when, when the doors of opportunity came open to travel in Kazakhstan after so many years of communist rule, not only did we discover an open-hearted people, but we also discovered that these are people who had not heard the gospel for 2,000 years. When people in the first village we moved to in Bayrjan Mumshila 20 years ago first came to Jesus, they were the first people in 2,000 years who had made a confession of Jesus Christ in the history of the church. An amazing thing. Well, listen, someone's got to pay for that. There's a cost implied. Someone's got to risk everything. And so Steve Unangst and Mary and Bob Ewert and Maria and Brett, members of our original team, these folks put it on the line. And all of us who actually subsequently went to Kazakhstan and traveled there because it's not easy and it's not safe. I still have in my file today a sermon ready to preach when someone from Union Chapel lost their life trying to give the gospel to Kazakhstan. Still in my file, and by God's grace, I've never had to preach it. But it's there, and it's ready. And when we commission people to go to other parts of the world, like Kazakhstan, we we put our hands on them and say, now go in Jesus' name and represent us. And the implication is we're asking you to give your life. Not just a few years of service, but we mean give your life. So when I, when I arrived in Kazakhstan a few years after our team had gotten there and I went into a little home in Bayrjan Mumshila one Sunday morning and there was nothing to illuminate the room except one light bulb hanging from a cord in the middle of the room and about 30 Kazakhs there, first-generation believers. No, not in 2,000 years had anyone embraced Christ in that part of the world. And there I am with first-generation believers, men and women and children, And I preached a little Bible lesson that day through an interpreter and then fielded some questions. And people were just amazed and so curious to know why Americans would leave the comforts and conveniences of our nation and go there. Why did you come here? We are confused by this. We don't understand your motive for coming here. And we say it's very simple. God loves the Kazakh people. and, And God wants us to express his love to you. And so we had to come here to share God's love with you. And that there are hundreds of people in Muncie, Indiana, the United States of America, praying for you. And I said, there are hundreds of people praying for you right now. And one Kazakh woman, beautiful, about 20 years old, beautiful Kazakh woman, well up and spilled down and dripping off of her beautiful little face. And she looked at me and and she said, so we are the product of your prayers. I said, yes. Someone's got to give. Someone's got to pray. And somebody's got to go. Someone's got to sacrifice. And Jesus models it for us. I mean, he's hanging on the cross. He's dying for our sins. Would you say that's a model? That's an example. There it is. There it is. We had had four kids, teenagers, from our serve week a few years ago here in Muncie. And they were in a neighborhood just off the downtown, a difficult neighborhood. And they were walking and praying. We call it prayer walking. So they would walk and pray, ask for God's blessing on this neighborhood. If they ran into people, they would pray for them and bless them and ask for God's provision and protection and, and his presence. And they came up to a home, very modest home, dilapidated house. 
There's an elderly woman sitting on the front porch. What are you kids doing? Well, we're praying. May we pray for you? Yes. They prayed for her and she said, would you, would you be willing to come into my house and pray for my husband? He's not well. Would you pray for him? And they looked at each other and said, all right, we'll do it. And they described later walking through this home, very modest, not pleasant at all, into a back room. Now, this was a sunny June day here in Indiana, but the shades were drawn in that back room. So it was dark and dank and depressing. And they found this elderly man sitting in a wheelchair. And they all got around him and they testified later that when they put their hands on him and began to pray that God visited that house. And after a few moments, this man began to weep. And after a few moments after that, he composed himself and he told them this story. He said, you probably know I'm not doing very, very discouraged, very depressed. And he said, I've been thinking about taking my own life. And he said, this morning I woke up and I decided today is the day I'm going to kill myself. And he said, in an act of desperation, I decided to reach out to God in prayer one more time. And he said, I prayed just this morning, God, if you are real, then please send someone by my house today to pray for me. You see, somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to be there. Somebody's got to take the risk. Somebody's got to invest their life. It's got to be inconvenient and uncomfortable and sacrificial and sometimes even risky in order to preach the gospel. And that is exactly what Jesus models for us when he sacrifices and he suffers for others. Here's the last point I want to make. You might want to write this down. And it's simply this. In Jesus' time of despair, what did he do? Well, we find him praying and worshiping. He prays and he worships. When Jesus felt abandoned and forsaken by God, he chose to pray. Uh, we call this the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when we, when we find ourselves experiencing this kind of forsakenness or abandonment or this isolation, I feel all alone, I can't understand why, our, our default, our go-to, our MO, and we all suffer from this, is to feel disappointment with God. Come on, God. We turn away from God. Sometimes we refuse to pray. Sometimes we even pretend that God doesn't exist. Sometimes we do that for a long period of time in our lives. Well, I just walked away from God. He didn't care about me, so I don't, I'm pretending like he doesn't exist. And we live our lives that way. We decide we don't want anything to do with God because God didn't help us the way we wanted. And so these words from the cross are very powerful. And let me tell you exactly why they're so powerful. My God, my God, why? They are powerful because they are actually the first stanza, follow this now, the first stanza of a very nationally popular hymn of the day. They come right out of Psalm 22. This was King David under the inspiration and anointing of the Holy Spirit who writes these words 1,000 years before Jesus was alive on the earth. Everyone in Israel knew the lyrics to this psalm, 22. Let me put the first couple of verses on the screen for you just so you can get context. Here's Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is. 
he's actually quoting a hymn of praise. Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night, but find no rest. This was such a popular hymn that everybody would know it. It would be like in America, someone singing amazing grace. Imagine if there was some person uh, in some level of despair and Christians were around them and this person in despair actually cried out these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What would come into your head next? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. And this is exactly what was happening. When Jesus begins to look at the next verses. All who see me mock at me. A company of evildoers encircles me. For my clothing they cast lots. Are you kidding me? They have pierced my hands and feet. Seriously? I mean, if you're there, this has to be surreal. Because every Jew within earshot rehearsing the next line of the psalm. Imagine this. He starts it with his cry of dereliction. And now they are imagining as they rehearse the next lines, which they all know by, by memory. And right before them is a prophetic hymn they've been singing their whole life. And it's being played out right before them. Awesome. Amazing. The Jews present there knew this song began with despair, but it ended with hope and victory. Look at the next verses, verse 24. It says, For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. Now, friends, this is the admonition now. This is the invitation that when we feel abandoned by God, we must choose to trust God rather than to feel forsaken by him. To lean into God, not away from God. So as Jesus prepared for his death, he's actually singing one of the great hymns of the church. He's singing one of the great anthems of hope. Look at the last verses. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn. He's talking about us. This is the hope that all of us have. So Jesus was reminding all of them there that death would not be the end of him. And death would not be the end of the gospel story. And death will not be the end of us because of the blessed hope that he provides to us. So when you think about it, there were three thieves on the cross. Think about it. The two that died on either side of Jesus and then Jesus himself, a thief. And let me explain. When Jesus was alive and doing his ministry... Note what he stole. He stole from Bartimaeus his blindness and from the leper his disease and with the paralytic with four friends his physical disability and his own sin. From the demonized gathering he stole from him, just took it from him, his insanity. From the Samaritan woman, her years of brokenness and disillusionment and failure. From Mary Magdala he took from her her woundedness and her demonized life. He took from Zacchaeus his greed and his deceit and from Nicodemus his legalistic religion. The woman caught in the very act of adultery, he took away from her, just stole it from her, took it from her, the crushing weight of a stoning. 
And from the widow's son and Jairus' daughter, he took from them the steely cold grip of death and presented their children back alive to them. And from every last single one of us, he has stolen from us. He's taken from us. He's ripped away from us the power of death and hell and the grave. Now we have a living hope and an eternal security. Praise be to God. So this agonizing of moment, physical and psychic suffering of Jesus, is ultimately God's cry of good news, of victory. Not only for himself, but for us as well. I want you to think about that. Let's pray. Lord, we were meant to find a crowd that day among the religious people who were taunting Jesus. We're meant to see the shadow that lurks within each of us. We're meant to see the costliness of God's grace, the price of our redemption, which was profound, and the wounds by which we are healed, they cut deep. In Jesus, we also see the sacrificialness of your love. And so we're meant to see that you identify with us in our abandonment, our feelings of forsakenness. And we're meant to see that suffering and death was not the end of Jesus' story, and neither will it be the end for us. So God, this day, forgive us. Forgive us for the times when we, like those who stood at your cross, have acted with cruelty. And thank you for identifying by your suffering with all who will ever feel forsaken or who cry out, why? So today, help us to trust, to trust in you, especially in our times of adversity. And thank you that our suffering and even death are not the last word. So thank you for reminding us of this cry, this cry of dereliction. Indeed, this song of victory, because inherent in your suffering and death is the promise of resurrection and life for all of us. So we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Now, say amen to that. Amen. Would you stand with us?